As we turn our attention to God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with joy-filled reverence and sober humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin prepares our hearts and minds to do that. Let's read it together. All people, all people are like grass. All their faithfulness is like the flowers in the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the words of our God endure forever. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the Blue Pew Bible, it can be found on page 878. Again, the text is Luke's, Luke 1, verses 26 through 38, found on page 878. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greetings this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I am a virgin, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was, sat, she who was said to be unable to conceive in her sixth month is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Father, would you change us from the inside out? Father, where there is despair, would you bring hope? Where uh, there is impurity, would you cleanse? Father, where there is confusion, would you bring wisdom and, and light? Father, where there is slavery, would you bring freedom? Father, uh, we ask that you would show up, send your spirit. Uh, Father, we cannot change ourselves. Father, we try, we try, we can uh, we, can, we can do all things that are sort of spiritual and social makeovers. And yet, Father, to actually pierce into the heart, to take what is dead and bring life, to take, to take we who are blind and give us sight, to take ears that are deaf and make them hear. Father, this you and you alone can do. And so, Father, we beg you to, to, to renew us, to encourage us, to revitalize us, especially during the season of your son's coming Lord God, I pray that uh, you would move, move in our hearts in a, in a, in a beautiful, 
in a lasting and a permanent way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about for you, but for many people this time of year, um, there's a sort of emptiness uh, to this Christmas holiday, to the Christmas season. We feel like we're supposed to be happy when, when the reality is that we are hurting. We're just hurting. Inside, we're dying. We're supposed to be filled with delight, and in truth, we're filled with defeat. Uh, we tried, and we tried. In fact, uh, we're, we, we're, we've, we've done all that we can. We've given and given and given and we're just, we're just done. We're just done. We're tired of feeling defeated. And, and that's it. And we think, we just think, you know, what's, what's the point? And really, what is the point? As a minister, I often feel that way. In fact, I was just reading an article recently saying that something like 38 to 40% of ministers in America today are quote-unquote seriously considering leaving their ministry position. 40%. It's amazing. And just think of all that we've been through the last few years and just an, on, on top of an already deeply unhealthy evangelical church. Now, I can remember as a kid, and the kids listen to this if you can, I was, as a kid I grew up um, during a time frame at the very end of what was called the Cold War. Okay? In fact, I grew up in Montana. If you kids know, if you can picture a map uh, of America, Montana's out west. It's right on the border of Canada. And of course, as kids, my brother and I, we knew being experts in the Cold War that we were, right? We knew that the Soviets were coming. And not only were this, because we had seen the movie Red Dawn. I don't know if you remember the movie Red Dawn. And this was very, I'm sure it was, the, you know, Hollywood very clearly, accurately described what was going to happen, right? And the movie Red Dawn is this silly show about the Soviets actually attacking. And of course, how do they come? I think that the main reason, the main way they come, I think, is through Alaska. And of course, just right through Canada, because, you know, the Canadians aren't going to stop them, right? And where, where was the first line of defense? Montana, right? I mean, they were going to come right to Montana, of course, to where we were, and so we had to be ready. And I can remember my brother and I having conversations about this. We had this little bedroom together. We had a bunk bed. Of course, he was in the top bunk. He's six years older than I was. I was in the bottom bunk, which just was not cool. But anyway, and we would talk about this kind of thing, and my brother was, uh, this is the age again of Red Dawn's the age. This is the, the decade of Top Gun. I mean, it's a decade of the Cold War, you know, Ronald Reagan. And we, talk, we would talk about this sort of thing. And not only that, but Brian was a big fan of the, uh, the author, Tom Clancy. You're reading about Tom Clancy books, if you remember those or not. So we would talk about those stuff. We're young boys in rural Montana. And we, 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 we would think about, you know, what sort of, what sort of um, uh, um, tools do we have? What are the weapons that America has to defend itself? And we would often talk about the different airplanes, different military aircraft that we had. And, and my brother even got to the point, both and I, both he and I eventually went to the Air Force Academy, so this is, you can see where all this is going in some ways. But he, he loved to take posters. He would buy these posters at local stores, etc. All these posters were posters of military aircraft. In fact, the, all four walls of our bedroom were covered with these posters of military aircraft. And one of my favorite ones was one called, was, was, a, was an aircraft called the SR-71. You guys remember this. It's not even, I think it's been like 20 to 30 years since this has actually been functioning. In fact, um, Drawn, you got a picture of this? Kids, look at this picture. Of this. this is the SR-71. And I remember having, I remember going to the next couple slides. There was one other picture and one more, I think. And I can remember we had a, we had a um, go back just one slide. We had, we had, we had, a, we had a, a poster, something like that. And I remember looking at it thinking, that is the coolest aircraft. I knew it could go really, really fast. And I remember asking my brother one day, I said, listen, I said, what, 
Tell me about the missiles and bombs that the SR-71 has. And he said to me, well, it, it doesn't have any. And I said, wait a minute, there must be some mistake. Surely it's got, I mean, how's it, how's it fight the bad guys? I mean, how is there going to be, how's it going to win the war if it has nothing? And he explained to me that all it had on it were cameras. And I thought, that was the dumbest thing in the world. I mean, here you make this fast aircraft, and I mean, it's just so cool looking, and there's pilots inside, and there's no air, there's no, there's no bombs. And my brother tried to explain, I think he tried, to, tried in vain to explain to me that there are different forms of power. That actually those cameras were these high-resolution cameras that from 80-some thousand feet were able to take to capture like literally 100,000 square miles of imagery in detail that would be highly useful uh, for America. And he said, in fact, when, when, the, when the SR-70 would fly over enemy territory and they would shoot uh, missiles at it, guess what they would do to, to, uh, to not, be, not be shot down? They would just speed up, right? Because the missiles couldn't catch. It was a, it was a Mach, Mach 3 plus aircraft. And what's amazing is that this is 1960s technology. Isn't that incredible? And uh, in fact, it was developed uh, in, uh, by Skunk Works, a Lockheed Martin, developed by Skunk Works, and it was developed as what's called a black project. When I was in the Air Force, I worked on what were called black projects. If you can guess what a black project is, it's a project that makes something that America doesn't make. Does that make sense? Uh, we don't make those. We're not into making those. We don't do that. Okay? And the SR-71 was very much that. Now, why, now kids, why would, why would an aircraft like that be built in secret? Why would it be done silently? Because we don't want the enemy to know that we have one. Does that make sense? This is really important because this is going to get right to the heart of the Advent season and our, and our theme for Advent. And so I can remember rolling my eyes. And after my brother tried to explain to me, because for me, I only understood there's only one way to win the war with missiles and bombs. There's only one form of power that really matters. That if we're going to take down the enemy, this is what's going to have to look like. And I remember just eventually rolling my eyes and just said, saying sarcastically, what's the point? Okay, so now I want us to think a little more about the story that we've, we've already read and, as we, and as that, that Christian read for us this morning, okay? So if you've got your, your, your pew Bibles, let's turn to this. I want to just note a few things that I've already mentioned from last week, but bring those into uh, the, the story this week. Last week we talked about Herod, and we mentioned the, the power that Herod had, and how Herod is essentially a footnote in the story. Again, this is Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 5, against page 879. And then we read, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. And that's it. We just, we, Herod is just simply a sort of a historical reference. We get a sense of the time frame. And after that, he's forgotten. That in the story of Advent, political power doesn't play a part. And that's an astonishing thing to say. In fact, it's almost a laughable thing to say. What do you mean? What do you mean that kings and princes and, and politicians aren't going to play a role in the most significant event in human history? But beyond that, what do we do see here in verse 5? We see that what? Who's, who is in the story? It's a priest by the name of Zechariah. 
And that's something, right? He's a somebody. He's got position. Right? What, what is he? He's a priest. Okay? And not only does he have p- p- position, what does it say? He's a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. Now, that may not mean much to you, but in the ancient world, pedigree was a big deal. I don't know if you kids have ever been on the playground before, and you start comparing dads. Have you ever done that before? Yeah, well, my dad is a doctor. Oh, yeah, well, my dad, you know what I mean? There's this sense of, hey, where I come from, my family, we're a big deal. Right? Or some of you may know, you've come from backgrounds where, oh, this certain family, they, they own a lot of property in, in the city that I grew up in. They, they have a prominence. They have pedigree. So even though Zechariah was in some sense a nobody, he wasn't a political a powerhouse, he still had position. Okay? Not only did he have position, he had pedigree. He had background. He had name. And not only that, where was he? Where were they? Well, we, we, we realize here that he was, he was, at the time at least, he was in the temple or at the temple uh, off, you know, serving as a priest. And of course, the temple was, in, was where? In the city of Jerusalem. So here you, here you have Zechariah, okay? He's got position. He's got pedigree. He's in, a, he's in a place that's a big deal, right? This is the very heart of Israel's religious life for over, well over a thousand years. And not only that, this is important as well. So again, there's, there's place, there's position, there's a sense of, that he's a priest. And uh, in addition to that, there's a sense that he is what? He's old. Which in our culture, in our time frame, in our day and age, that, that's actually not cool. But in the ancient world, in fact, in most, majority, in most cultures even today, to have that age, to have that experience, brings with it what, theoretically? And wisdom or prudence, right? So again, he's got place, he's got pedigree, he's got position, and he's got, hopefully, prudence. He's got wisdom, he's got life experience. Like, okay, well, here's someone who just might be able to pull it off. Right, if, he, if he's going to bring about the kingdom of God, if he's going to help, if, if real transformation in life is really going to happen, guess what? It might happen through Zechariah, even though the guy's barren, okay, or his wife's barren, okay? Something still may happen. Well, as we turn to our story today, look what happens, okay? Look at verse 26. This is so powerful because what happens, the story actually gets even less significant, if you will. That, that the angel turns to someone who is even less influential, who is the epitome of inconsequentiality, the epitome of insignificance. Verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Now, if you look in the ancient sources among the historians like Josephus or Strabo or some of the other, the other uh, ancient Roman and, and Jewish Historians, you know what they say about Nazareth? They say nothing. In fact, it doesn't appear. It's nowhere in the ancient sources. You know why? Because it doesn't matter. Where does God send the angel Gabriel? To Nowheresville. To rural, at best, rural America. In fact, it's more like rural Nigeria. Okay? This is not like somewhere in the Italian peninsula where it's Rome. It's a rural, rustic Rome. You know, it's rural, rustic Italy. No. This is backwaters of, of, of a, you know, don't get me wrong, Judea had some consequentiality to it. But this is not Judea. This is like north. This is, this is 
This is uh, Galilee, okay? So where is God sending the angel Gabriel? To nowheresville. Keep us keep going here. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to verse 27. <coughs> Excuse me, to a virgin. Okay, here, it's not only just, for us, the primary connotation is that there's been, there's, that, that she has had you know, no former sexual encounter, that she's a virgin. Here, the primary connotation is that she is a maiden, that she's a young person. In fact, she was probably, this is crazy, she's probably a, an early teen, 14, 15 years old. Isn't that amazing? And again, in the, our culture is a youth culture, but in those days, it was not a youth culture. It was all about being elders. The elderly who had clout. It was the elderly who made the decisions. And to be a teenager meant that you were what? You're a nobody. Right? You're just, you're just you're small. You're insignificant. So it goes to this maiden. Um, so it goes to, to a nowhere, to a nobody. In fact, so to a person who's really defined by her coming marriage. Right, she's going to be a homemaker. She's going to be a, she's going to be a wife and a mom. And then, and then it says the virgin's name was Mary. And who's, who's, who, who's, Mary, what, what's, uh, who's Mary's parents? or Who are Mary's uh, um, ancestors? Well, we actually know from other Gospels, but according to Luke, who are, who are her, who, 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 what pedigree does she have? We don't know. Because they're, they're that inconsequential, apparently. Okay, so let's, let's compare Zechariah and, and Mary. All right, Zechariah's got, he's got position. He's from a certain place. I mean, he's not from, I mean, he, he's working in a certain place, a big deal in Jerusalem. He's a priest. He's got pedigree from the descendant of, of Aaron. Right, and he's got prudence, he's got age, he's got wisdom, he's got discernment. He's got knowledge. And here's Mary. She's a, no, she's a nowhere and she's a nobody. She's got no job or nothing. That is an amazing thing that God is choosing to send, his angel, to send his angel Gabriel to make someone like that the key agent in the story of redemption. Now, let's look briefly at what the angel says to Mary. And this is so beautiful. I love this. Uh, verse 28. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. We, we read that verse and we just kind of think, oh, Mary is just being kind of nice or something. Mary is saying, look, Mary gets it. She's saying, listen, you're in the middle of nowhere. Are you sure you didn't get the wrong house? If you're not in the wrong, right? I mean, are you sure I mean, you're you the right town? Take a wrong turn somewhere? Are you sure you're talking to the right person? This doesn't make any sense. What, what's going on? What's, there must have been some sort of, you know, Google Maps made an error or something. Because this is not the right place. What, what, what in the world is going on here? See, Mary understands the way, listen, this is so important. In the ancient world, when you needed help from someone, when you, needed, uh, when you wanted someone to come alongside you and, and ally with you or, or help you get something done, you went to prominent people. You didn't go to nobodies. That make sense? You went to, for example, when, when, Herod, uh, when Herod the Great decided that he wanted to get rid of all of the Hasmonean priests, the, 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 the priests who were in the temple before he came to power, whom did he put, whom did he put in their place? 
He didn't go find a bunch of you know, godly priests. No, he found random people who were, who were his family members, people who, whom he stood to gain from, listen, to expand his power, his influence. He went to them and he put them in places, he put them in positions of power in the, in the priesthood. But here, God doesn't do that. He goes and finds the least powerful person on the planet to be the person through whom he brings in the, 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 uh, the one who will change the world. So Mary is greatly troubled at his words and wonders what kind of greeting this might be. At verse 30, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. I want to point out here how the angel describes Jesus in three ways. First, he describes Jesus as a son, listen to this, the son of a country redneck. Verse 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son. So who's Jesus? The son of Mary. Jesus is a nobody as well. In fact, even his birth, to some extent, will be called into question. His status, his legitimacy, in terms of where is Joseph, who's the real father, and that would have been something that would have been a, that would have been something that would have followed him his entire life. Jesus comes from nowheresville. He is the son of a country redneck, if you will. And I don't mean that condescending. I'm just saying how many would have seen Mary, how they would have seen Joseph. They would have seen them as inconsequential, as irrelevant to, the, to, to what really matters into the world, to have no, nothing to offer the world. Second, he's, first, so first Jesus, the angel speaks of Jesus as a country redneck, the son of a country redneck. Second, though, he speaks of Jesus as the son of, a, of the cosmic ruler. Look at verse 32. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. So here's this country redneck who has complete divine backing. This is, this is getting interesting, isn't it? Right? In the, in the military, we call that top cover top cover. That is to say, as small as you may be, as long as you've got someone above you in the right position covering you, taking care of you, backing you, you're going to be just fine. In fact, again, going back to what was it, when I was in the Air Force, I worked in what were called black operations. In fact, they were operations that, that, that the majority of, of the uh, research and development world in the Air Force would not even have known about. In fact, there were regular times where, where someone would say, hey, where do you work? And we, we would just say, ah, we work at blah, blah, blah. We just sort of had this sort of silly cover story. And they'd be like, I don't know where that is. I'm like, ah, that's all right. And we just, we just leave it at that. And that's the whole point. They, they did, we didn't want them to know where it was or what it was. But what we knew, listen to this, what we knew is that there are certain persons way up in the Department of Defense who knew we were there and were giving us all the money we needed. And, and they were the ones who initiated the whole program to begin with. And so we were good. We were good with being inconsequential. We were good with being uh, quiet and stealth and, and unknown. We didn't need all the fanfare. We didn't need any of that because we knew that we had what? We had divine backing. So he's the son of a country redneck, but really, I mean, this is, this is where the story gets so interesting. He's also the son of the Most High. He's the son of the cosmic ruler. I love how he says that again. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. So first, the son of a country redneck. Son, the second, the son of the cosmic ruler. Third, the son 
of the covenant representative. He speaks of first the son of Mary, the son of God, and then third, the son of David. Uh, verse, um, verse, second half of verse 33, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So what does it mean that he's the son of David? It means that Jesus is a covenant representative. Let me help you understand what this idea is. It's so important. In fact, it's central to this meal that we're about to partake of. Jesus is not a private person. He, when he acts, when he does something, he does it as a representative as a representative of all the people who are in covenant with God, who are in relationship with God, so that the, the end result is this. Whatever Jesus does is something that his people also do. That whatever Jesus' destiny is, that is the destiny of his people. They share in that destiny. We understand this from the world of sports, right? We have a hometown team. We have, whether it's the, you know, whether it's the Cardinals, whether it's the Blues, we understand that when the Cardinals win, who wins? We win. We won. We won, right? Right? It's like you think you didn't win anything. You're just sitting there at a bar drinking a beer. What do you know? And, oh, we won, right? There's a sense of participation of that this is our, this is our game. And we share in that victory or in that defeat. That as Jesus lives his life, as he battles the forces of darkness, as he lives a life of obedience, as he dies a death of sacrifice, as he rises from the dead in triumph over, over death and the forces of darkness, that we share in that. Does that make sense? In fact, if you look at, the, if you look at your... Um, and you're at the, the Lord's Supper uh, liturgy that we're about, to, to, we're about to, um, uh, to perform here, you'll see that it's a certain place. I, says, I will I say something like, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. And what do you all say? You can say it. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Well, what are we saying there? We're not just saying, well, that's what Jesus did. We're saying that, no, we're participants in that. He died, and so that means we died. We died with him. He was raised from the dead. That means that we too have been raised with him and he will come again. That we too will come again. That we too will share in that glorious second coming as those who will be vindicated and, and declared innocent at the final judgment. And so we see here again this beautiful idea of Abe Gabriel coming to a, to, to a nowheresville, to a nobody, to his no life experience and saying you from you will come the one, the son of a redneck, the son of the cosmic ruler, who will overcome every obstacle to make this happen, to bring about his kingdom. And he will do so not just simply on his own, but as, the, but as how? As the son of David, as a covenant representative, so that whatever happens to him, whatever his destiny is, we too will share in that destiny. Now just to understand a little bit about what, what all this means for us. I, I just, I, let me just uh, go ahead and, uh, Ron, go ahead and put up that next slide there. So not, well, I'm gonna skip that for now. Go ahead and this next slide. How many of you know what, what we're looking at here? Some of this has become almost an iconic image or a concept in our time. This is taken from the Lord of the Rings. And that's the what, who, or who is that, or what is that? What's that? The Eye of Sauron, right? This is the Eye of Sauron. Again, if you're not familiar with the Lord of the Rings, that's fine. You're not, I mean, you're missing a little bit, but 
Not that much, right? So this is, uh, this is taken, this is the enemy, this is the bad guy in the Lord of the Rings. This is Sauron. And what's so interesting about Sauron is he's a really, you know, he's sort of the epitome, sort of this incarnation of evil, if you will. And that eye, go ahead and go to the next slide there, Ron, to get a little closer up there. That eye is um, an eye that is um, metaphorical in a lot of ways, but really magical. This eye can pierce through anything, can see anyone in anything. And it's this symbol of how Sauron is simply everywhere. That he can see whatever he wants, he can his eye can pierce into anything and overcome and, and subdue and enchant anyone. And it's just no, it sort of symbolizes his near omnipotence, or at least his near omniscience and power. And what's so interesting in this story, that his eye is constantly looking for what? You remember you know, the story, what's it looking for? It's looking for the ring of power. And of course, at first, the, it's the eye is looking for a ring that should be where? Who would be wearing the ring? A king or a mighty warrior, right? And eventually, of course, Sauron learns that who has the, who has the, uh, the ring? The hobbit, a little, little creature, a hobbit named Frodo, okay? And eventually, it, it starts looking for Frodo, but of course, where is it looking? It's looking among armies, it's looking among cities. It's looking among princes and important people. And the eye, Sauron has no idea that the ring is not only on Frodo. I mean, he knows that. He learns and learns that eventually. But he doesn't realize that Frodo is by himself. Well, not by himself. He's with whom? He's with Sam, his friend. And this very interesting teacher named Gollum. Go to the next slide here. I think we've got one more. There we go. There's Frodo and Sam. And uh, go a few, one or two more here. Go, there you go. There's Frodo. There's, there's, there's uh, Sam carrying Frodo, the ring bearer. Go ahead. And then there, there's Gollum right there. And it's these three. Listen to this. This is so important. It is these three who bring Sauron down. And how do they do it? How do they do it? It's not with swords or spears, it's not even with spells. How do they do it? Through friendship. Through commitment. Through trust. Through compassion. The, the, the movies bring out so well how Frodo continues to have compassion on this guy on the right here, Gollum, who's, uh, who, whose life has been destroyed out of, of a lust for the, for the ring of power. And he has compassion on him. And, and it's through Gollum who actually shows the way through Mordor to Mount Doom. And these three together, this, and this is just, I, I just want to drive this home because this is a story of Advent. How, how silently, how silently the gift, the wondrous gift is given. Listen to this. Man, I just, I think this is so important. Please hear me. Our news media, our our uh, uh, mainstream media is exactly, uh, Ron, go back a few slides, it is exactly like that I. I would love for every time you start reading the news online for you to imagine that I. Because it's this powerful thing that is always fixing its gaze on the wrong kinds of power. 
It says it's all about the president. It's all about policies. It's all about all of these things that need to change and happen within the institutions of our world. It's focused again and again on all of these things. This is where power is. This is where power is. And meanwhile, again, if, if, there, if, if there were a mainstream media in the ancient world, it would be talking about Herod. It would have written the first two chapters of Luke 1 and 2 all about Herod, all about Caesar. And it would have completely missed the story of what was really happening. The mainstream media thinks of power in ways that are so pathetic. In ways that I, as an eight-year-old, thought about the SR-71. What good is that for? It's just, what's the point? The mainstream media has no idea the friendship, that community, that commitment are what change the world, are what bring, are the real forms of power that change the world. My family, Sarah and I and, and Winston and, and Julianne are reading right now through what's called a book called The Wind in the Willows. I can remember starting it as a kid, and I thought, this is the dumbest story in the world. Now that I'm, well, today, now I'm 44, I actually have the maturity to read The Wind in the Willows. And there's one chapter in this, there's one chapter in which uh, it's late one summer night, sun's down, and I think if I remember right, Mole is, there are two main characters, Mole and Rat, and they are friends. And if I remember right, Mole is sitting there on the bank of the river, just sort of soaking in the evening, and Rat comes back home, he's had dinner at the otter's house. And he says, yeah, I had a wonderful time with the otters, but they're distressed because they have a little boy otter, and this little boy otter often wanders, wanders off. And goes, oh, we'll be gone for a couple days, just wandering out into the woods and having a great time. Everyone knows the little otter, little, little Portly is his name. And he's been wandering around, but he's been gone like three or four days. And he hasn't come back, and they're concerned. They're wondering, where is this little boy? And Mole and Rat stop, and they think, oh, what? they're kind of sitting there on the bank. It's late at night. It's ready to turn in for the night. And they say, you know what? Forget sleep. Let's jump in the boat and go look for little Portly. We have no idea where he is. We have the probability of success, like 0.01%. But we're going to do something. Do you see that? It's just the two little people, two inconsequential people, deciding that they're going to make a difference, that they're going to help, even with the odds of making a contribution or almost nothing. And they set out together as friends in search of a little one whom the world doesn't even know exists. That's the Advent story. That's how the people of God go about changing the world. And it's such a, the chapter is so beautiful toward the very end. Of course, they end up finding Little Portly, and they find actually a lot more. They're blessed in all of these. They reap so many benefits from this unexpected journey that is just so priceless. And that's how it works. When you actually decide, you know, I actually want to be part of the kingdom of God, not just show up in church. When I actually want to begin to serve and to give, boy, is it costly. But boy, do you receive so many unexpected blessings along the way. And it's so beautiful. They're in the boat, and they got a little portly, finally. And they, they, he, they throw him onto the side of the bank, and he runs along. And his dad's been waiting out all night. He's been waiting all, almost every last three, two, three nights. His dad was waiting by the little... Um, a uh, little um, water hole where he taught his son to fish, where he taught his son to, to swim. 
And his dad is just sitting there waiting for his son because he thinks maybe my son will come back to this water hole. And this beautiful story of little Portly coming alongside the bank, running to see his dad. Dad, dad, I'm home. Why? All because these two little friends, Mole and Rat, decide that, hey, let's make a difference. And you wonder, let's say, okay, let me just, we're almost done here. You may say, okay, so Christianity is about friendship, it's about, it's about little people caring for each other. But what about the issues of our day? What about the justice? What about the things going on in the media? What about all of the things that are broken in this world? What about those things? And listen, just, this is so important to hear. Christianity is profoundly political. And I want you to know that when you, when you form a friendship, that is a political act. That when you care for inconsequential people, that is a political act. But it may not happen, but the change at that, at that macro level may not happen quite in the way that you think it is. Listen to this. I want you to imagine for a second that Sarah and I, and this is unthinkable and seems kind of dark, and there's, a, there's a point to this. Imagine if Sarah and I, when we had Harrison, I just said, you know what? We've already got four. And it's just another mouth to feed. And so let's just, let's just take Harrison out. We've got 10 acres back here. And we'll just let him, let him, take him in the forest there, leave him there, and he'll die. And we'll just stay at four. You know, in the ancient world, in Jesus' day, in the Greco-Roman world, that was normal. A mother would have a child, and if the child was unwanted, if the child was somehow defective, was sick or ill, that's what they do. They they were called exposing. You just expose the child. You just take the child somewhere to the garbage to the garbage heap, take the child out to the forest, and you just let the child die. And that was common. It was accepted. That was how things worked. Right now, you and I can't imagine that. You know why that is? Do you know why that 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 whole concept is gone today? in the world is because Christians of no consequence from no place who were nobodies decided that they would actually go out and get those children and take them back and welcome them into their hearts and homes and either nurse them to health or nurse them till they died so that the notion of somehow letting a child die, an infant die, was, came to be, over centuries, came to be considered utterly inconsequential, I mean, utterly just unthinkable. How could you ever let a child die like that? Do you see how over the centuries, through Christians just doing their thing quietly, that they actually changed the whole moral fiber of, a, of an entire civilization? Does that make sense? So is Christianity politically consequential? Are Christians able to mobilize and bring about massive policy change? Absolutely. They just do it by loving their neighbor. Okay? So there is a time and a place. We're talking about policies. We're, talk, we're choosing, you know, uh, um, uh, voting wisely. No one's, no one's negating that. But it's to say the Advent story speaks of Elizabeth and Zechariah just living faithfully in their old age. It speaks of a teenage girl saying, hey, I'm the Lord's servant. It speaks of this beautiful picture of Elizabeth, an old elderly woman who's expecting, and Mary, a young teen who's probably scared to death, 
and they're together hanging out in their home, enjoying, you know, just enjoying life together, encouraging each other, praying together. Friends, family. That's how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given.